When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. From New York City, this is Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit. I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. And on this episode of Film Spotting SVU, I break with my usual tradition of co-hosting this podcast with a farting corpse to discuss a movie about a farting corpse as Matt and I review Swiss Army Man. For the record, that's only half true. I am not a corpse. Gross. That's fair. Later in the episode, we'll bring you cue shots in which we recommend some titles you can rent or stream at home right now, all centered on a common theme. And in honor of Swiss Army Man, I originally suggested, and this is not a joke like so many of these intros are, this is real. I suggested we did a podcast about farts in movies. If not now, when was really the (laughs) rationale. But Allison thought that idea stunk. So instead, we're going to talk about other movies featuring Swiss Army Man star... Paul Dano. Uh, To be fair, I did not dismiss it outright. I just said I needed more time (laughs) to prepare than we had. To sort of... uh, To really do justice to... To soak in the funk, so to speak. exactly. All right, fine. But first, before we get to Mr. Dano or Dano, this is something... Is it Dano? I think it's Dano. Okay. Let's decide now. Dano. Dano. We'll stick with Dano. Okay. Okay. Before we get to Mr. Dano, let's do opening break, a segment we do in conjunction with Movies on Demand on cable, in which we spotlight a few new titles that are new on demand. Allison, it's your turn to guide us through it. What have you got for us this time? Well, first up is a movie I like so much that I feel didn't get enough attention. It was really one of my favorite movies of the year. That is The Edge of Seventeen, which will be on demand on Valentine's Day. That would be the 14th. This is Kelly Freeman Craig's teen movie that is both funny and biting and tender and stars Haley Steinfeld as Nadine Franklin, who is awful in the most believable way, in that way that only teens can be, when you're, you're at the mercy of your emotions in such a way that you treat the world as if you're the first person to have ever felt the way you do, (laughs) that no one can understand what you're going through, even though adolescence is not exactly a novel experience. Uh, The movie is about how Nadine's best and only friend, Krista, played by Haley Lou Richardson, starts dating Nadine's much-loathed older brother, Darian, played by Blake Jenner from Everybody Wants Some. And Nadine is heartbroken and furious and ends this friendship 
uh, and then finds herself alone and lost and trying to figure out what's next. It is a great, I think, really well done movie, a a really good portrait of uh, being a teenage girl and has a great supporting cast that includes Woody Harrelson, Kira Sedgwick and Hayden Zeto as a really unconventional love interest uh, who's very delightful. Um, so that's Edge of Seventeen. That will be uh, on demand on the 14th. On demand on the 21st is Moonlight. If you haven't seen Moonlight moon, in theater. Moon. I know. I'm moonlight. familiar. I'm going to write this one down. Hold moon, on. L-I-G-H-T. Nice. Okay, got Thank it. you. That was some Sound nice full, fully work fully there. Work. Yep. Um, <laughs> I have, you have to have seen this in theaters, right? You guys went and saw this in theaters. Please tell me you saw this in theaters. Uh, Barry Jenkins' movie is gorgeous and so lushly cinematic and visual that it really deserves that. If you have not, you can find it on demand on the 21st, uh, or if you want to take a second look yes, on the 21st. It rewards multiple viewings, It definitely too. does. And finally, uh, on demand on the 24th is a movie you liked a lot, Matt, mm. and have spoken about on this podcast, and that I recently saw and enjoyed as well, The Girl with All the Gifts. Oh, yeah. yeah. This is the zombie apocalypse movie that offers some different and much more complicated ethical challenges mm. than is standard to the genre. Yeah. Uh, and it's got a, an excellent class as well that includes Glenn Close, Patty Considine, Gemma Arterton, and Sienna Nanua as the girl with all the gifts uh, in, a, in a really kind of great breakout performance. So that is on demand on the 24th. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. When I get back home, I'm going to show Sarah how much I care about her every single day. Whenever she wants, she's thirsty or whatever, she can drink my spit, and then she can ride my gas to wherever she wants to go. You can't use your gas in front of other people. What? Why not? Because it's weird. People don't like other people's farts. Is that why you don't fart in front of me? No. I just like to do it alone or hold it in. That's what you're supposed to do. That's so sad. That's so sad. What are we even going back home for? It sounds like you're not allowed to do anything back there. Every review on Filmspotting SVU is chosen by listeners through a poll on our website, filmspottingsvu.com. For this episode, your options were the new Netflix series Santa Clarita Diet, the surreal Italian horror film Le Grand Bouffe, and the eventual winner, with 42% of all votes cast, Swiss Army Man. The film tells the story of a man named Hank, played by Paul Dano, who is stranded on a, des- on a deserted island and about to commit suicide when his final leap into the great beyond is interrupted by the appearance of a corpse washing up on his beach. The corpse, played by Daniel Radcliffe, soon displays what are apparent magical powers, including jet-powered farts, Got to make sure we mention the farts. Uh, and a seemingly bottomless reservoir of drinkable water that pours out of his mouth like, a, like an old-fashioned like a western town like water spigot where you'd have to pump it, pump the well, that kind of thing. 
Um, given that, it is not too shocking when this corpse, who Hank names Manny, also starts talking, and the two men begin having conversations about life and love while they journey back to civilization. Swiss Army Man is now available on Amazon Prime. That's where I watched it. But it debuted at the 2016 Sundance Film Festival, where it proved to be a divisive film. Famously, there were many walkouts during the movie's premiere, uh, as some audience members were left, I guess, perplexed by the curious combination of gross-out humor and what could be described as sort of very artful, romanticized loneliness. Uh, I guess my question to you, to kick things off, Allison, would be, was there any point in the film where you considered walking out, or in this case, since we're watching it at home, turning it off? I don't walk out of movies. Uh, I I think maybe once in my life I've walked out of something, uh, and it was because I needed to throw up for unrelated reasons. (laughs) Not because of the quality of the film? No, not because of the quality of the film. So I I don't really do that. And I feel that oftentimes the walkouts at a festival are often signs that it's a movie that I'd be most interested in. You know, the booze and the walkouts at festivals uh, I, I often look at as a is a good sign. It's like the F Cinema Score. It's like right. if it's a, if, if it it's, doesn't appeal to that audience, it that or they people reject it that strongly, there might be something very interesting. Right, you even if it's not it's good going or to bad. Do something or, daring. Yes, yes. Yeah. And I do feel that Swiss Army Man attempts to go big. You know, uh, I, I my feelings about this film are very mixed. I feel like the opening sequence, which is just this, uh, is Paul Dano attempting suicide seeing this this corpse thinking he's like got company finding out it's a dead body attempting suicide again (laughs) and then realizing that maybe there's something that he can do to get away off and riding daniel radcliffe's corpse like kind of like wonky-eyed corpse like a jet ski across the ocean i find like positively delightful i find that whole part great I do not think that this movie holds together as a whole. I find watching it for a second time, as I did uh, before this, that it still feels to me like they, after, they, they thought this out maybe as much as the beginning and some of the montages of the powers, secret powers at work, or uh, d- discovering of, of Manny's other powers. I don't feel like they knew where they were going with it. So I feel like this movie is, for me bundle of ideas some of them really interesting or funny that that just don't connect entirely well but what about you did you consider at any point being like bah this is just not Uh, not working yeah yes i did uh i I mean i don't really tend to walk out of movies either because that's part of our job and obviously i would not turn this movie off since we are talking about it and like that's like the one rule is you got to watch the whole thing before you bash it unless it's a netflix series unless it's a netflix series and it's 14 hours long in which case you know i got a child i got a life i gotta i gotta sleep occasionally I, I, we are actually, I think I feel a little bit more strongly about my response, but we had almost the exact same reaction to this movie. I loved the opening scene, like the cold open before the the title card comes up on the screen. That's a beautiful, like perfect short film. Um, but I'm not sure the rest of the movie really amounts to very much. And it, I had sort of a strange, I hadn't seen it before. And I had what was to me was an unusual response in that I sort of admired the performances the cinematography, the special effects, the sort of ambitions of the movie, 
the music, but didn't really like the movie very much when it was over. Like when it was over, I even though I respected a lot of it and and uh, like you said, sort of appreciated the fact that. Well, I think you said it, it goes big. I, the way I put it in my notes was this movie does not meet you halfway. Like you have to commit. You have to go all the way. So I, I, I admired all of that, but I didn't really enjoy the experience of watching a lot of it and found uh, long stretches of the middle kind of kind of painfully boring, actually. Like that uh, just – despite all the good stuff in it, to me, it didn't really hold together. And I, you said you know you didn't know if they knew where they were going. I mean, I think I, – I, I don't know, but that seems very fair. It didn't feel like to me they knew where they were going. And I really felt like the ending here – to me, it was like I kept waiting for the ending to see where is this going to go? How is it all going to be tied together? And will that make me sort of recontextualize what I've seen? Because obviously this corpse is so strange and there's something going on here where is it all a dream? Did he actually commit suicide or is he in the – is this all like you know that very first scene? He talks about his life flashing before his eyes before he dies and – if I may posit a fan theory, I suppose it's possible to read all of this as some sort of grand vision before death. But uh, I, I found the actual ending of the movie to be really disappointing. I agree. But I think that I, one of the things that I find frustrating about this movie, but also maybe interesting about it, is that they continually confound where you think that is true. it will go That's in terms true. of... Uh, resolving into an explanation, right? Like yeah, that's that's fair. That there is a character played by Mary Elizabeth Winstead, who is like the third listed on the cast, who is actually like a totally barely in, barely in the movie. She's mostly and, a a phone wallpaper, right? And that is by design, I think, because when the characters finally show up and meet her, she's like, "What is going on?" <laughs> you know, like there is no like happy kind of like potential of anything. Yeah, you know, uh, and I think that like. It it basically performs a series of reverses towards the end uh, that I think kind of lose you very quickly. It yeah. lost me very quickly. I think it has I too agree. many reverses. Yes, I agree that I think the ending is like very underwhelming and, and kind of leaves you not sure how to feel. Yeah. But I'm curious what you think about the movie's attempts to be a message about like self-acceptance and mortality. Um, I think the mortality stuff works a little bit better than the self-acceptance stuff, which... That everybody farts? Yeah, it's like... I, I mean, I, I, I find... I mean, like, fart humor, thumbs up. I'm all for that. Like, when, when Daniel... Like, when he's about to die and there's this strange corpse on, a, on the beach that just mysteriously starts farting and pretty soon the farts are being used uh, to propel him jet ski style through the water... A plus, thumbs up, all for that. But when it becomes about like, why won't you fart in front of me? And they have like these discussions about it. It's just like, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm too comfortable with my own uh, flatulence, but I've never really felt like this was a, that big of a, of a of a deal in our lives. Or even as a metaphor for like feeling. Like I, get your body, is, yes, I get that it is. I get that it is a metaphor. Yes. I, yeah. I guess. I. I um. I, I don't know. That it didn't really connect with me. It really didn't. I yeah. mean. Um, Paul, I mean, Paul Dano seems like, I mean, he doesn't look like a weird dude. I mean, I guess in the movie he's sort of eccentric and he dresses up in funny costumes at times while they're on this journey. But like, I don't know. I just did, I guess I didn't really buy him as this guy who was that uncomfortable in his own skin. It didn't seem like, maybe it's because we don't see that much of the before. Right. To re or like, we don't even really know how he wound up where he is on this island. And so... Um, yeah, it just didn't didn't really connect with me. To me, like the thing that worked 
was was just Radcliffe as the corpse. I thought it was an incredible performance, like technically and emotionally, like what he does playing, you know, this guy who's mostly just frozen. I thought it was great. And I, I thought it was like it was sort of like you could see why he took it on as a challenge. And I thought he nailed it. Yeah, I see watching this a second time. I definitely it read more to me as a film about that core idea beyond like beyond I think what whatever they came up with first which I have to imagine is the cold open right uh, it read to me more as an attempt to make a movie about not someone being totally weird but someone who has kind of been paralyzed his whole life by the ideas awkwardness, about, shyness. Not just awkwardness but also like a sense of distance from his body and what he actually wants and from from interacting with other people mm-hmm. you know and I think that I don't think the movie really totally earns that but i did feel it on upon second watching i did think that it kind of it it, it was more it was more central a part of the film that than i'd remembered mm-hmm. and I, I and i do think that it has moments of kind of like sweetness to that in trying to go through this really outrageous premise to get to this idea that like you're a pile you know like your body is a pile of weird functions and that to kind of agonize over that and to and to feel ashamed of that and your own and then like kind of to create the sense of like yourself as this terrible weird thing uh I, you know that 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 just means that you're wasting your life yeah i i mean i think that's uh, i appreciate the the gestures towards it and sometimes i thought it worked and sometimes i thought it didn't at all i guess i mean it's certainly a, a nice message it's not a message i disagree with uh it's uh, again as a, as a message to hang like a hundred minute movie on it's a little thin when that's one of the few things that it really seems to be kind of pushing uh it's like again like how much talk about the um, emotional underpinnings of farts do we really need i i guess i just feel like you could say that about basically any movie maybe maybe it's just this one just didn't connect with me boyhood oh everybody grows up like you know i just feel like i i don't i i don't feel like like defending this movie because i don't like fiercely because I don't feel that great an attachment to it. I don't know. I mean, I think that that's most movies boil down to a message that is like fairly easily dismissed. If, if you I guess that's, that. I guess that's I feel fair. Like it, you know, but... I think, I, I think it's totally fair to be like, you didn't feel like it was developed enough to, to kind of sustain what, what was going on here. Right. I mean, and also maybe it's just the fact that really not very much happens in this movie. I mean, it's really just these two characters wandering around kind of aimlessly as we eventually see, like they're sort of, there's no really, there's no sort of forward momentum really at all. We don't know where they are in relation to where they're going or how close they are or making progress or not making progress or do they even care? Um, so it's like, it's sort of like, well, the, you know, like the message seems sort of thin to me and also the plot seems sort of thin to me. And so it's like, there's just, there's not a lot of meat on the bone for me, I guess you could say. Yeah. I mean, I feel like they're trying to make a movie in the tradition of like Gondry. Oh yeah, obviously. for sure. Uh, but uh, at Spike Jones, you know, that I, I feel like their influences here are pretty strong. And yeah. uh, the directors, uh, Dan Kwan and Daniel Scheinert, are music video directors who kiss, which is as I think that also comes, Gondry. Yeah, and, and it kind of uh, comes through in sure. the film. The use of music I thought Spike was quite Jones. lovely. Yes, including in the, the Jurassic Park the theme Jurassic song. Jurassic Park theme. Yes. And, yeah, I mean, the, the, the use of music and the sort of way it rises out of 
the characters singing is actually quite clever and sometimes very beautiful too actually that was one of the things i liked about the movie so yeah, yeah but you can you sort of you would i think it, you would guess if you didn't know who directed it you would say somebody probably has a background in music videos or someone since it's sure. two guys and i feel you know when i saw this movie at sundance i the thing that i did appreciate it about it was that it tried for like for visual quirkiness, you know, in a festival that is generally all about thematic quirkiness only. That's fair. That it it has a sense of visual style and kind of a, a sense of being cinematic that I don't think is always there. I am curious to see what they do next. I don't think this movie, as I've said, really holds together. I do recommend taking a look at their music videos and short films, uh-huh. uh, which you can find online. Are there any you specifically recommend? Well, the thing they did that was probably their most famous for is the Turn Down For What music video, oh, which was hugely viral. Yes, yeah, And which that. I think you can see a lot of connections to what they do here, which is like it's almost... It takes kind of like hip hop sexuality and turns it into something that's kind of grotesque, right? Like in that it's so outrageous that it becomes like, like outrageously funny. Uh, you know, they've you've got people who, including Dan Kwan, one of the directors, who's the dancer at the start, uh, who's dancing and like bursts through the ceiling of an apartment building with his erection. <laughs> like, uh, I think that. There's a lot that you can see there that fed into this the kind of uh, sensibility of Swiss Army Man. Yeah, you know, but with the, more farting. With more farting, but the definitely the bodies are hilarious. Strange, weird. weird. Yeah, bodies are yeah. weird and hilarious. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um. So that that that's something that's there in a lot of their short films, and I think a lot of or their short films and their their music videos show maybe what the sense you might get from Swiss Army Man, which is that they have a lot of good ideas that they don't necessarily have a lot of experience spinning out into Harnessing, a feature length. Focusing. Yeah. That would be, yeah, I'd be curious to see what they did next too. I would just want a little bit more sort of focus, purpose, maybe, like you said, tons of interesting ideas, clearly guys with a lot of talent, but just kind of sort of like unharnessed. Um, before we wrap this up, mm-hmm. We've talked. We mentioned Daniel Radcliffe, who I agree. I think does like hilarious work and also engages very directly. And I think the movie does this very intentionally with the idea of Daniel Radcliffe as a famous actor who <laughs> played Harry Potter. Sure, uh, you know that. And it, uh, but what do we think about Paul Dano in this role? It is in some ways a very typical Paul Dano yes. role. He is a mopey, meek, meek, uh, pathetic, sweet. Man who's like afraid that he is uh, like dislikable. Yeah, damaged. Yes. I was going to talk about the, the Paul Dano type in our next segment, but yes, this very much, it feels like his, it's almost like he could be playing Paul. Like he doesn't have to be playing Hank. I mean, Paul in quotes, the guy that we see on screen a lot. The thing that I, the, I, I took notice of um, possibly because I was watching this while knowing we were going to talk about him some more, was he has a beautiful scream. His voice is an instrument. And um, it's something that I really admire about him is the way that he uses his voice as an actor. I'll talk about that more in the next segment too. But he has a few screams, very, and I don't mean this insultingly, almost like girly screams yeah. that are wonderful. When he screams, like when, when he discovers something about Manny that he didn't know before, it's it like the world smiles when Paul Dano screams his <laughs> his scream. He has a beautiful scream. It's very expressive, and I hope he never stops using it. Uh, that's lovely, yeah. and I think it is is true. Uh, but yeah, I would agree. It's in some ways, <clears throat> as much as the idea of casting someone quite fairly famous 
with like some iconicity to him seemed to be the point of Manny as mm-hmm. a character. Uh, Hank is almost as iconic in terms of it representing like a Paul Dano type. Yeah. You know, that, uh, yeah, you're, I, I agree. He could be Paul. Uh, and I think showcases a lot of what I like about Dano and also sometimes what I want him to get away from. Oh, should Just we talk about that now or save that Let's for the save next that minute? for the next part. Okay. Um, so yes, two, one, I would say no on Swiss Army Man. Yeah, mine's a, probably a no. And one extremely mixed. Yeah. recommend some Paul Dano movies. I wonder if this is the first podcast in history devoted to Paul Dano. It's possible. What surprised me um, when I was looking, you know, I was looking around for when we said, all right, let's do him looking up, trying to find movies, what's available online and looking up different things. And I forget what review it was. I think it was on Letterboxd, someone talking about one of his movies and, and just saying how just the sheer presence in this – his presence in this movie would have turned me off, but I liked it. And I forget what movie it was. But just uh, – uh, then I seeing that some people have very strong aversion, which I find odd because to me he's an interesting actor. And he doesn't do conventional – a lot of conventional boring stuff. Like to me, I, I almost put him as like a – in a, like almost like in the, in the Christopher Walken category where if he's in a movie – there's something it's gonna there's gonna be something interesting in there like Swiss Army Man not a movie I particularly liked but I there there's it's not worthless there are things of value it's interesting it's trying to do something like he doesn't just phone in a gig for the dough you know what I mean so I was surprised to hear that some people are I guess I didn't really recognize that there are some strongly negative people about him but I I like. I like him as an actor. I'm always excited when I see his name in the credits. I generally am. I should point out that there are not a lot of 32-year-old actors we could do a podcast on. He has worked a lot, you know, and... and with some, inter- with some, with really, some talented people, right, too. Like, he has worked a lot, usually on projects that, even if I didn't like them, there's a reason that you would pay attention to them. Exactly. I do agree. He is very divisive, though. Uh, and I, I, I think... Even in some of the roles that we know him best for, but I, the thing that, like for me, was uh, made me understand how how strongly some people felt about him in a negative sense was Prisoners. Yeah, Prisoners, which is one of. But those I don't movies. blame him it's, for Prisoners. No, but that is one of those movies where I feel like if you are not a supporter of Paul Dano, <laughs> that is a movie that you wave around. Uh, yeah, and that's another very again that that's that type we were sort of already. Uh, talking about a little bit. We have talked about Prisoners. If people want to hear our conversation about that, that was Film Spotting SVU number 50. Still available on our website. You can find that and listen to that. But yeah, that he's definitely... That's like almost the like the ultra Paul Dano role, like gone to like sort of the dark extreme. There can be sort of like... There's like a spectrum of lightness and darkness to those that Paul Dano type, and that's sort of on the on the darker end for sure for sure yeah uh, and i think you know it's it's funny when you go back to lie which is not a movie we're gonna either of us picked uh to follow up but like he made in 2001 and was the lead in that and it's a really dark challenging indie uh in which he kind of befriends 
a pedophile uh, in, you know, and kind of like got a lot of attention back then. He's not someone who, who makes safe choices. No. And I think sometimes I find him maddening. <laughs> I would say in particular for Ellen film uh, from So Young Kim. That that he was the Not lead sure of. I saw that one. He plays like a rock star who, oh, or an aspiring rock star. Yes, as it's soon like, as I saw the pictures, I, I it recognized entirely it. Entirely is driven by his performance, and it was one of those uh, films where I was just like, I don't want to be in the space with him for this long, just yeah. in terms of what he was trying to do. Uh, but I really admire that he is willing. He. In characters that I think are like oftentimes the point of the character is the sense of his disappearing. Paul Dano never disappears; he demands attention yeah. in these roles, and I think that is that is definitely something to be admired. Mm-hmm. So you want me to go first? Why My first yeah, recommendation. First. All right. So I think we've already sort of outlined it last segment that Paul Dano type, you know, that character that he plays, it's like an embodiment of indie film. <laughs> <laughs> That's. I mean, that is not unfair. I would say that sort of. Yeah, all the all the words we've used to describe him. Meek, maybe a little pathetic, could be sweet, could be a little kind of scary. Cunning. Cunning, sometimes. sometimes yeah. Always seems slightly damaged in some way. Um, but I decided, you know, because that's sort of the type, I was curious if I could find something where he maybe did something a little different that didn't fit that image too much. Uh, and I found this movie that I had not watched before, which is available on Netflix from 2012, called Being Flynn. Uh, it is not a great movie, but if you like Paul Dano, it is worth watching on Netflix just for him alone because he is doing something a little different and it's interesting to watch. Um, in this case, the problems with the movie were not him, at least to me. They were his co-star, who is Robert De Niro, who plays his father in the film. De Niro's character is named Jonathan. He is this – he's like a con man, fast-talking, um, like uh, you know, he can't stop lying kind of a guy – Fashions himself as this great writer. He's never published anything. Bitter and angry and, and getting old. And, and uh, Paul Dano plays his son, Nick. He also writes, but not in any professional way. And as the movie begins, he's kind of searching for a purpose in his life. He hasn't spoken to the father in 20 years. Naturally, that changes very quickly. Otherwise, there would not be a movie. Jonathan calls Nick to help him when he's evicted from his apartment. And then they meet again at a homeless shelter where Nick winds up working. Uh, and I know we're supposed to be talking about Paul Dano, and we will, I will in a second, but I just have to mention De Niro in this movie because before he becomes homeless, Jonathan, his character, works as a taxi driver who also happens to be an antisocial racist homophobe. Mm. So he is, in other words, Travis Bickle, like sort uh. of what if Travis Bickle had, had you know, if, the, if we took the end of Taxi Driver sort of at face value, where would the character be sort of in 40 years, which is probably why the director, Paul Weitz, wanted De Niro for this movie. And it's sort of an interesting casting for that reason, but De Niro's sort of like complete apathy on screen and this strange delivery that he seems to give in a lot of his recent movies where he sounds like he's reading the lines for the very first time on camera. I don't know if you ever feel that way when you're watching him nowadays, but I do. Where he doesn't know where the punctuation goes. No, he doesn't. Yeah, yeah, exactly. His punctuation is strange and he has like no inflection. It's really just awful. And uh, in a movie about two guys, when you really don't think one of them is giving a very good performance, that's a problem. But, but, but Paul Dino is really interesting in this. And, you know, he does have some of the psychological issues that his characters often have, but he's not, you know, very meek or soft in the movie. Uh, soft of affect, I guess you would say. And even though he's 
he does not look like Robert De Niro, and he's maybe like at least a half a foot taller than Robert De Niro. <laughs> um, he actually kind of convinces you they're related in in his performance and the way that he kind of channels these subtle younger De Niro ticks into his performance. And I mentioned in in the Swiss Army Man review, Paul Dano's voice. And I again, I was be- seeing Swiss Army Man and. And uh, being Flynn in a 48-hour period, I was very interested, and it really made that pronounced, the way Paul Dano uses his voice and the control he has over volume and tone. And the way he usually talks and the way he talks in, like, Swiss Army Man is very high and very whispery. And I think that's part of what makes him often seem kind of weak is, like, the way he talks, he sounds, you know, it just comes, it's like... He sometimes allows his voice to break. Yes, he allows his voice to break, and it sort of creates this sort of broken feeling in the character. And here he uses a deeper voice, maybe a little New York accent. His body language is different. His posture is different. He really creates this totally different impression of sort of more, like, strength and confidence. And to see those two characters, like Hank and Nick... Back to back was really, really striking and interesting and impressive. And he's not doing, you know, other, you know, I guess he has a beard in one movie for part of it, but just like the, without hair or makeup or anything flashy like that, he just creates two totally different people, which I found really interesting to see. So this is not necessarily a movie I would rush to recommend, but if you, if you do like Paul Dano and you have Netflix already, it's something I think is worth at least taking a look at for him alone. So that's Being Flynn available on Netflix. Well, for my first pick, I also went with a movie in which Paul Dano plays a writer. Um, Interesting. Yes. It is Ruby Sparks, which mm. is available for rent. This is a 2012 film from Jonathan Dayton and Valerie, Fer- Valerie Ferris, who did Little Miss Sunshine, which, which Paul, was one of know, his breakout is also roles. In, right. Yep. And, uh, and he stars in this film alongside his real life partner, Zoe Kazan, who wrote the script. Yeah. And what I really like about this movie, which I feel was kind of. I think a little underappreciated is just how much it digs into both uh, certain indie film tropes and into the persona, the kind of type of role that we've said that Paul Dano often falls into. He plays Calvin, who is introverted and lonesome and filled with (laughs) self-doubt, a novelist who wrote a successful debut and then has gotten stuck and also feels that he is unable to kind of connect with other people because all they can think of is him as this, you know, hotshot novelist. And so they have these huge expectations of him that he's sure he will disappoint. Uh, He feels unseen. Uh, And then on the advice of his therapist, played by Elliot Gould, he does a writing assignment about meeting someone who likes his dog, who is like him, maybe a little not naturally likable. And he comes up with this pretty, quirky kind of dream girl named Ruby Sparks, played by Kazan, who he imagines and kind of fills out as this person who would kind of insert herself into his space and like him, flaws and all. And then he wakes up one morning and she is there in his house dun, as dun, a dun. real person acting as if everything he'd written about until that point had been real. If this sounds like weird science meets a Cameron Crowe movie, it (laughs) definitely is in terms of concepts. But what actually unfolds is this kind of surprisingly pointed inquiry into, in particular, the whole manic pixie dream girl concept. Yeah. This character type who seems to have popped into existence entirely to brighten the life yes. of a morose young Satisfy man. Satisfy the emotional needs yes. of that guy. And coax him out of whatever depression and right. like, hole he's hidden himself Only in. Only someone would see it. Yes. Uh, Ruby has literally popped into existence. <laughs> she is 
you know, uh, Calvin's creation, his perfect foil, except the more that she kind of becomes a full-on person capable of like befriending people on her own and going off and doing things on her own, the more that he starts worrying about losing this person that he wrote himself. Uh, and then he starts, despite promising that he would not, going in and writing things to change her, to basically tweak her code. And all of the things that happen once he starts doing that are like grotesque. Uh, you know, first he tries to make her more dependent on him, then to make her happier, and uh, it's all done under this kind of like, like quirky indie romantic comedy general umbrella. But it is very disturbing, and I think it's one. It's the part of the movie that is by far the best. Uh, it does write itself into a corner, kind of ironically, and I think that uh, the movie's ending. I thought was not satisfying at all. Mm. But I do feel like everything it does, like leading up to that point is, is really smartly done. And uh, I think deconstructs both. Yes. This tendency towards the, this, this uh, beautiful, winsome, wide eyed uh, girl with a bunch of hobbies and seemingly nothing else in her, like in her life going on, except to coax this dude out of, uh, out of his own misery. You know, it, it digs into that, but it also digs into the idea that maybe a lot of this kind of depression and introversion is, is like inside out narcissism, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. which like, which Calvin gets confronted with. Mm -hmm. So it's a movie I like a lot despite the ending. And I, I do think you should check out. It is Ruby Sparks uh, available for rent. And I think it is maybe the most self-aware of the Paul Dano performances. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you you drew the connection to being Flynn. I mean, there's also connections to draw with Swiss Army Man in terms of sort of creating this right. this character to sort of fulfill your emotional needs and like sort of that or that maybe an extension of yourself or an expression of certain things about yourself that you don't want to. Interesting. Boy, I hope Paul Dano listens to this and really thinks about what we're what we're saying here. <laughs> no, he doesn't because I already feel really weird about it. Yeah. Okay. Well, my next pick is uh, a movie I really like. This one I do recommend wholeheartedly. Another really great Paul Dano performance. One of his best, I think, that I've seen. And uh, uh, speaking about him again as an actor, you know, and what he does and what he does well on screen, you know, I don't really think of him as a chameleon. Again, he has like a very strong type that we both talked about. Uh, and we don't he, you mentioned about dis you know him disappearing he doesn't really disappear into roles we don't forget we're we don't forget we're watching him we're usually pretty aware but he does a really good job of kind of disappearing and forgetting you forget you're looking at him and you really convince yourself you are looking at the young Brian Wilson uh, the leader of the Beach Boys in Love and Mercy, which is this very unconventional musical biopic about Brian Wilson set in two totally distinct periods of his life and the movie is available on hulu and in the paul dano sections it's the mid-1960s the young brian wilson is creating his what most people consider his masterpiece pet sounds the beach boys album while he's also beginning to succumb to this very uh debilitating mental illness and then in the mid-1980s you have a middle-aged brian wilson who's played by john cusack who seems like a totally different guy. He's, he's sedated. He has this strange affect. He is under the thrall of this very controlling therapist who's played by Paul Giamatti. And it's not told chronologically. The movie cuts back and forth between the two Brian Wilsons and their stories. And here's another sort of parallel is thinking about how many of these movies, I think every movie we've talked about so far, Paul Dano doesn't necessarily play the lead 
Um, even if he's top build, he's all, it's, these are all like sort of two person studies. They're character, they're like two character dramas. Swiss Army Man, um, being Flynn is really about him and the father and Ruby Sparks. It's like there he likes to sort of play like one of the two co leads of a movie. Although in this case, it's a little different because the two co leads never meet because they're playing the same person. Of the two roles, I think Paul Dano had the much tougher role um, because, well, for one, I think that was the more – that's sort of the most famous period in Brian Wilson's life. We're more familiar with what he looked like then, what he sounded like then, what he acted like then. And other than his sort of mental breakdown, there really isn't much of a story in those scenes. All the tension, all the drama in the movie is the John Cusack section because that's about – his new girlfriend, played by Elizabeth Banks, who sort of comes into his life and realizes that the therapist is, you know, not healthy and has to sort of free him from his clutches and stuff. And while that's all going on, the Paul Dano section is really just about him writing music, which is not necessarily the most cinematic activity one could put on screen. And what sells it really is the performance and the way that Paul Dano kind of lets you see how intertwined this guy's genius and his madness was in this period. Like they, one didn't, it's like the yin and the yang, like they did not exist without the other. And he really brings us inside the, this guy's perspective to, to help us in some small way, understand how he saw and heard the world and thus was able to create these unusual, bizarre, but beautiful sounds that he, created and he did gain weight for the part of course because that's what very serious actors do when they're playing a, a, a real person of history um, and he also does sing a little bit of the music uh, he was sort of he did a lot of uh, musical training to convincingly play this uh, musical genius and I think he does a really impressive job of, of that as well there is actual Brian Wilson singing in the film but Paul Dano when he sings actually does a pretty credible job and Overall, I mean, Paul Dano and John Cusack look less like they're related, much less the same person, than De Niro and Paul Dano did. But what's so clever about this movie is it it works like a Brian Wilson song in the sense that his music often has these strange, seemingly discordant elements that come together to create harmony. And that's what you see in the movie is these very disconnected people who don't seem like they're the same person. But combined, they make this very interesting, diverse portrait of this guy. So it's a really unusual and very interesting uh, music biopic, which tend to be, they, you know, as a genre, that tends to be one of the most conventional genres. This is not a conventional one of those types of movies. And uh, if you like the Beach Boys music, that helps, but it's not required. It's a it's a lovely, lovely film with another very good Paul Dano performance, Love and Mercy, and that is available on Hulu. The whole section of that film where they he uh, leads the kind of orchestra, he creates the music with the orchestra, the music is so great. It's incredible. Yeah. Um, all right, for my second pick. I went with a film that I do not need to recommend because it has been plenty lauded, but it is There Will Be Blood, which is on Hulu, which is, I think, my favorite uh, Dano performance and also probably one of the most um, best remembered if you were to think of his career highlights. You know, For he sure. faces an aw- as awful a challenge as an actor can in, in Paul Thomas Anderson's 2007 movie, he has to perform alongside not just Daniel Day-Lewis, <laughs> right. but Daniel Day-Lewis doing one of the most monumental performances of his career it's as true. oilman Daniel Plainview. Uh, you know, Daniel has to be the closest thing Plainview has to an enemy other than himself. 
this has to be a scary thing for an actor. Uh, you know, remember Leonardo DiCaprio in Gangs of New York? Trick question. No one remembers Leonardo <laughs> DiCaprio in Gangs of New York. Did you know Cameron Diaz was in that movie? I've seen it Vaguely. times. I, Only because I her face is on the poster. Yeah. Uh, but what Dano does is Eli Sunday, who is one of two twin brothers from a farm in California that, uh, that Plainview buys, he goes on to become a local preacher and then a radio preacher. Um, he aims to match Day-Lewis not in gravity or in kind of murky darkness but in smarm uh like plain views kind of he's like his laughable double mm. uh he is a power player in faith rather than an adherence to plain views chosen religion of uh, rampant capitalism and you know the physical contrast between the two actors is definitely very intentional you know plain view looks like the devil incarnate sometimes this like dark kind of brooding figure and then Eli is this like reedy, baby-faced young man with, as you've pointed out often, the higher voice, which yes. gets used a lot in this performance, uh, very carefully. Uh, you know that that the kind of <clears throat> the fact that the two men understand each other, uh, and the fact that Plainview can see himself in any way in Eli is itself a torment for him. You know, Eli uses respectability and morality as weapons in the mm -hmm. same way that Plainview uses greed, uh, you know, and, and he's such a kind of unexpected foil. The men throughout the movie take their chances to humiliate and beat the other uh, eventually to death. Because I think uh, they both understand each other as, as hollow men chasing power over mm. other people. I know some people don't like Dano's performance in this movie, that some people see it as over the top. But I think that that quality is absolutely intentional, that we are supposed to understand the phoniness in Eli, or not even just the phoniness, but the ability that he has, that maybe we see in other people as well, to conflate kind of like grand rules of morality with personal grudges so perfectly. Mm. You know, he has no problem using the tenets of his faith to, to get ahead himself and to use them to punish other people, you know, in the kind of like his most famous moment and he's howling, you have abandoned your child. It is not because he has a deep attachment to this kind of surrogate fatherhood uh, of Plainview's, but it is because he knows that it will hurt Daniel Plainview in this way, that it is one of the few things that Daniel Plainview feels vulnerable or sensitive about as much as he hides it. And I think that it is, it is a performance that actually manages to stand its ground against the the greatness of what Daniel Day-Lewis does in this movie. And I think there's something really impressive to that, that Eli is such, is such a smarmy, uh, kind of like empty person. Uh, and I, I, and I think in a way that when presented against Plainview ends up creating a commentary, additional commentary on Plainview himself that Plainview cannot help, but uh, cannot ignore. Um, so it's really great work. And I think, it, for very good reason, stands out in his career. That is, there will be blood on Hulu. I never knew this. Did you? I'm just looking at this right now. Did you know that Paul Dano was originally only cast as Paul Sunday? No. It says this is Wikipedia, which is never wrong. So who knows? But it says two weeks into the shoot, Anderson replaced the actor playing Eli Sunday with Paul Dano, who was originally only cast in the smaller role of Paul Sunday, the brother who tips off Plainview about the oil. If that's true, that's 
like even more mind boggling because he's so great. And the fact that they're this, they're twins is so interesting in the movie. And it's like a part of a lot of what we've talked about, about the sort of the Uber Dano on screen that he gets to sort of show these different sides. Uh, fascinating. I, 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 I didn't know that, but uh, we're going to have to, I'm going to have to find, we're going to have to confirm this and make sure that it's actually true. But if so, even more impressive. Very briefly here, we just looked this up in, in between segments, and it, it's in the New York Times magazine, so it, uh, that, a little bit more reputable source. This is from a, a magazine article from a few years ago. It says, halfway through the 60-day shoot of There Will Be Blood, Paul Thomas Anderson realized that the <clears throat> second lead actor who plays Plainview's nemesis was not strong enough. He, repla- he was replaced by the versatile young actor Paul Dano. So there you go. Wow. You go, Paul Dano. Well done. All right, let's talk about some new movies in theaters before we get to our Behind the Eight Ball segment. We've got uh, one movie we've both seen. We've got a couple of films we've one or the other has seen. We'll briefly talk about, um, I guess let's start with, should we just start with the movie that we've both seen? Get that out of the way. It is Fifty Shades Darker. This is the sequel to Fifty Shades of Grey, the very successful uh, I, what would you call it? Is it a erotic drama? Erotic? Sure, erotic. It's not really a. It's not really a thriller. It's a romance. A romance. Let's say a romance. It's a a romance uh, based on the very popular best selling series of novels. This is the second film based on the second book with Dakota Johnson and Jamie Dornan. He is this incredibly powerful billionaire who never does any work. Uh, who had this very intense relationship with Dakota Johnson's character, but he's into BDSM and she is not and looks down upon it. And so they broke up at the end of the first movie. I don't really remember why. I guess she just wasn't into it. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't really they matter. Get together, they get together within, yeah. they get together literally within one scene of this movie. Like they, re- they meet again and he's like, I want another chance. And she's like, no, I have to think about it. And then like 45 like, seconds. Okay, okay. She's like 45 seconds later. She's like, fine, let's do it. And then... Uh, that's basically what that's the entire, happens. Yeah, that's the, the entire the movie, movie is just them having a relationship. Yeah, and and him revealing increasingly weird details about his personal life. Right, and her being like, I don't know. Okay, and then thank is. you for sharing that with me. Now let's have sex. Right. That's essentially yeah. how it goes. Yeah, there are maybe like five sex scenes in this. Uh, yeah, I all mean, you know, like. R-rated sex scenes. R-rated sex scenes. I don't think they're like radically for all of this. This series like having a reputation for being like wildly sensual. They are like not that adventurous. They're Hollywood sex scenes. They're totally. I mean, I guess there's maybe one. I don't know if it even counts as a sex scene for most of it. That involves, I guess, uh, I don't know what you would call it, a toy or something. The use of an object, and uh, I guess that's for a Hollywood mainstream movie. That's probably a the little na- out there. Yes, that's the naughtiest it gets. It's yeah, pretty. Yeah, yeah that's absolutely. naughty is a good way to put it. Yeah. It's sort of cheekily naughty, but uh, the rest of it is pretty. You know, it's it's just like people having sex in an R-rated Hollywood movie with. Oddly, I, one of the things that I find strange about both of these movies is that there's way more female nudity than male nudity. I guess we see him, you know, without a shirt, and he's walking around, and he's, you know, he's buff, he's got a good body and everything, but 
Um, Dakota Johnson is naked a lot more than he is, which I find very strange for a, a movie that I presume, you can correct me if I'm wrong, very much more aimed at a female audience. I, I would hope so. I would yes. hope so. Yeah, I don't understand that. So I find that that was the case in the first movie, and that's the case here. I find that a little odd. Well, you should note that the first movie was directed by Sam Taylor Johnson, who does not come back for this second movie. No. And I feel like Sam Taylor Johnson, for whatever it's worth, wrestled some like fairly ridiculous, like over the top source material into something resembling a whole. Um, movie the second like this DJ is Starker is just ridiculous yeah. like it is it is it has almost no plot <laughs> it, none it, it, it has, really doesn't the closest thing it has to action is a, a, the helicopter. a helicopter crash which happens and then before there's even time for there to be tension he like walks into the room this is yeah this is absurd this uh, to me was one of the two laugh out loud funny moments in this movie actually there's a few more but one of the funniest where uh, he's on some like business trip, and of course, because he's an eccentric, uh, sadomasochistic billionaire, he's also a helicopter pilot. Of course, so he's flying his own helicopter, and there's some sort of uh, mechanical failure, and they go down, and 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 meanwhile, his girlfriend, the Dakota Johnson character, is out with friends who we literally have not seen the entire movie, so I did not remember who they were, and I'm sitting there going, "Who is the?" blonde who is the boyfriend i told they literally don't appear in the movie before this they were in the other movie i guess and they get a, a phone call and they're like we'll be right there and you're like oh no what's happened and they're all sitting around watching the news and <laughs> wow <laughs> they literally like they're waiting for the news and the news is how you know this famous billionaire christian gray he's gone missing his helicopter went down and literally, the the like newscast is like, this just in, Christian Grey has been found, he's fine. And literally, two and a half seconds later, he walks in the door of the apartment, and he's like mildly dirty. But that's it. Yeah. And I'm going, he didn't think to call anyone? He didn't uh, no. borrow anyone's cell phone? Uh, also, you should note that like this incident does not link to any other Nothing. development like no. there's almost there's like the vaguest suggestion that a character was another character was in involved it, but that never actually gets developed right it's it left i no, assume for the third it makes film no, maybe i guess so it makes no difference in terms of the central relationship no like it i guess maybe it influences her, her decision, decision to stay so. with him maybe she but, didn't seem like she was on the verge of leaving him though no certainly not that. so it, it's it is laughable. Like, it is. The yes. only thing that's more laughable, and then we'll move on. I yes. know you tweeted about it. It was the th- I couldn't I couldn't it's stop thinking about it's it. The best part of the movie. There are several scenes that are set in the house where Christian Grey grew up. He is both an orphan and also like the scion of this wealthy family. It's so ludicrous. And so there are several scenes that are set in his like childhood or teenage dumb bedroom in this old house where his adopted parents still live. And in one scene in particular. There's a very clear shot when they walk in the room of what's the poster on his wall. And what poster, what movie poster did Christian Grey have on his wall, Allison? The Chronicles of Riddick. The Chronicles of Riddick. That's the best part of the movie. He's a huge Riddick fan. And so, and like that whole scene, he sits down on the bed right in front of it. So the whole scene, the poster is still there, slightly out of focus, but like, it's 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 also like a big emotional moment. It's one of the most important heartfelt conversation between these people. You can't help but stare at the poster the whole time. And uh, I think as you tweeted very accurately, this character, this Christian Grey character, is like a, like a zombie. He has no emotions. He is like just this weird person of this very strange compilation of tics 
and traits. We didn't even mention, but there is a part in this movie where he confesses that he has always liked women that look like his birth mother. Yes. <laughs> that, that like it's like no the big secret, The secret and he likes of to his kind them. of, yes. Yeah. Of his, his dark alert. sexuality. And it's just kind of like they just go go forth from that. Yeah. It's like extremely like troubling revelation. Right. Yeah. But like, well, yeah. Uh, but the, the, there's also a scene where he puts uh he uses lipstick to draw a boundary on his chest yeah and then goes out wearing a white shirt the and lipstick. and then hours hours later he takes off the white shirt the lipstick is still there and has not smeared on his shirt i want the lipstick for my wife and i want the shirt for myself because that way i know that shirt is never going to get dirty it's like impervious to stains incredible so what i'm saying is it's uh 10 out of 10 yes. must see excellent yeah all right let's get to some of the other very briefly some of the other movies that are out or coming out uh, I saw the Lego Batman movie. You missed it, Allison? I did miss it. I know everyone loves it. I mean, I don't know if I love it. It's very enjoyable. I don't think it's quite as fun as the Lego movie. I think it was a better movie. Um, this one is a bit more of like a inside joke fest. You really, if you if you don't know the extensive history of Batman and especially the 60s TV show, you're going to miss a lot of the jokes. But it's fun, and Will Arnett is great as Lego Batman. He has that; his voice is incredible. The voices all over the place are, are generally really great. Um, Ray, uh, Ray Fiennes plays Alfred, and is very dry and droll, and exactly how the, uh, Alfred should be. Whereas Alfred is always so encouraging and sweet, and like this, Alfred just does not give a crap about Batman, and is so sick of his shenanigans. I found that very refreshing. Uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's very sweet. You'll enjoy it. It's very. Uh, it's a good way to. You know, take your mind off things for a little while. Now, you saw John Wick Chapter 2, I which did. I, I have not I'm seen. I'm shocked that you have not seen it. Just haven't got a chance yet. Yeah. It is, I would say, on par with John Wick Chapter 1. Good. That's and all I need it, it is, to be. Yes. It is extremely enjoyable. It is... The action sequences continue to be really beautifully directed. Yep. Just so you... All the better to appreciate the way he slams someone <laughs> on the ground and shoots their brains out. Right. Splattering on the wall and elegantly. Uh, it... Uh, but my favorite part of the film, I know that like um, uh, uh, film bro Twitter, let's call it, always okay. loves John Wick for its action sequences and the beauty of them. I love John Wick for the elaborate nature of its assassin economy. <laughs> yes. I would say in my defense, I enjoyed both in the first Fair. film. Uh, and it is built out a lot more. Um, occasionally, like maybe a little more explanation than is necessary. But there are many new aspects of the assassin uh Economy. Underworld. Underworld economy revealed. Do they in this. go to that same hotel? I love the hotel. They go to the hotel. The, was it the and Continental? Then they go to the Continental in Rome. Oh, wow. Yes. <laughs> so it's a whole chain it's a whole of assassin chain. hotels it, right, like, it, that operates only by gold coins. Only by gold coins. And let me just say my main complaint with John Wick. Why is it that a drink at the bar costs one gold coin, but a room also for the night Great also question. costs one very gold fair, coin? Qu- very fair question. Yes. Explain to me maybe the Maybe gold, the value of gold was fluctuating heavily that day. I don't know. And so in between the two transactions, the value of a gold coin went from like 50 cents to... Three hundred dollars. Yes, probably. you raise a great. It's like gra- a, it's the Bitcoin of uh, <laughs> exactly. a, a professional killers. It's a great question. I have no. I have no response. Yes. I think we need. I think chapter three should just be about this question. <laughs> in fact, because we need to know. Absolutely. All right, anyway. and then very briefly, yes. uh, coming out uh, next Friday, a movie I'm actually looking forward to. Please don't break my heart by telling me you hated it. It is uh, a cure for wellness. This is a new horror film from. Gore Verbinski, who is probably best known now as the director of the many Pirates of the Caribbean movies, at least the first three, but also has some horror chops. He was the director of the American version of The Ring, which is an excellent horror film. How is A Cure for Wellness? I liked it. 
I feel like it is too long. It is okay. very, very long. All right. Uh, it is extremely silly sometimes in ways that I love. It is kind of like a prolonged medical horror fantasia that sometimes reminded me of Evolution. The, I never know how to say her last name. Lucille had Zahalovich movie. Mm-hmm. It's like Evolution combined with Crimson Peak. Okay, I could yes. be into that. Uh, but I, all of the body horror stuff I, I found so terrific. Uh, I, I really like laughed out loud with delight at one scene in which a character is forcefully given dentistry without painkillers. Oh. <laughs> Just like the camera like holds on it. Like the it's it's wonderful. I, I think that it's general messaging about um, explaining this concept of the cure for wellness and of uh, it is a little unearned, but but it's really gorgeously done. It is really a masterpiece of art direction, certainly, uh, of nothing else. I thought it was a good time, um, and I will leave it at that. Okay, before we get to Behind the Eight Ball, very quickly, we have a contest to do. We are going to have three winners of this prize, and the prize is... One Blu-ray of Moonlight and one Blu-ray of Manchester by the Sea. So you get two of the best movies of the year, in my opinion, on Blu-ray. We're going to have three lucky winners. And here's how you enter this contest. You leave us a review on iTunes and shoot us an email, svu at filmspottingsvu.com, letting us know you did it. Now, we know that if you've already left us a review on iTunes, you're not allowed to leave a second review, which is unfair and cruel to us. But nonetheless, if you've already left us a review in the past, just send us an email, same email address, svu at filmspottingsvu.com, and instead of leaving us a review, just give us a listener recommendation that we can read on the show. We always need listener recommendations. We can always use more listener recommendations. So again, the prize is a copy of Moonlight and a copy of Manchester by the Sea on Blu-ray, and either leave us a review on iTunes and email us, or just email us your listener recommendation, and you will be entered to win, and we will select three winners on our next show. So Manchester by the Sea is now available on Digital HD and will be available on Blu-ray, DVD, and on demand February 21st from Lionsgate Home Entertainment. Lionsgate Home Entertainment is also releasing Moonlight, which will be available on Digital HD on February 14th and will be available on Blu-ray, DVD, uh, and DVD February 28th. Okay, good luck to everyone. Now let's get to Behind the Eight Ball where we finish up the show with some recommendations of new films that are available on streaming. We also give you two listener recommendations that you guys have sent to us at that email address, which one more time is svu at filmspottingsvu.com. And we also give you one film that we've each chosen blindly by number from each other's my list. Allison, who's going first on this episode? I'm going first. All right. Well, let's start with three new releases on streaming. Okay. First up, new to Netflix is the recently concluded second season of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. One of those benefits of a deal that Netflix has made with a network. It was on TV. Now it is on Netflix. Uh, I love Rachel Bloom's musical show, and uh, I have not seen all of the second season yet. Looking forward to catching up on it. New to Amazon Prime is My King. This is the film from Mai Wen, who is an actor and filmmaker from France. This movie got uh, a lot of kind of like, was really broadly dismissed at Cannes the other year. And uh, I caught it on a plane and actually didn't think it was bad at all. It stars Emmanuel Berko as a woman who is in a, a growingly abusive relationship with Vincent Cassell. 
I do not like the framing device, but I think as a portrait of someone who is in a relationship with someone and you uh, who doesn't treat her well, but at the same time is like deep, really charismatic and fun, it it kind of shows you why someone would stick out for as long as this character does before finally managing to get away. That is on Amazon Prime. And finally, new to Netflix, a film that needs no introduction except a musical one. Magic Mike uh, is there, so you can watch it again and again and again and skip to your best or your favorite parts. I'm still waiting on Magic Mike 2 to also be on Netflix, but that has not yet happened. All right, how about two listener recommendations? Well, we have one from Andy from Philadelphia who writes, Hey, Matt and Allison. I w- Hi. I would like to recommend two music documentaries on Amazon Prime, Supersonic and Made of Stone, The Stone Roses. Supersonic is a doc made by the producers of Amy about Oasis, focusing especially on the contentious sibling rivalry between guitarist Noel Gallagher and vocalist Liam Gallagher. Fans will love it, of course, but it's also fascinating to see the unstable, explosive relationship between the two brothers play out in interviews and archival footage. Made of Stone is about the 2011 reunion of the Stone Roses, who were sort of the Britpop precursor to Oasis. It's about a quarter, it's about a quarter behind the music, three quarters concert documentary directed by Shane Meadows, who did This Is England back in the day. While Supersonic is the more interesting documentary, both docs are essential viewing for fans of late 80s, early 90s Britpop. Thank you for that, Andy. Uh, and then we have a recommendation from Ross, who actually brings up the, the documentary that has been mentioned to me in person, recommended to me in person more than anything else, I would say, in the past few months. He writes, I'd like to recommend the Adam Curtis-directed 2016 BBC documentary Hypernormalization, mm. which can be found in its exhausting entirety on YouTube. I have some reservations about this disturbing multi-decade-spanning treaties on governmental and financial collusion towards mass manipulation via technology and hidden information. For one, it's a conspiracy theory, brilliantly assembled from archival footage, ironic Hollywood mashups, and narrative voiceover that draws suspicion with its unwavering certainty. Secondly, Curtis isn't exactly a people person. <laughs> Little is gleaned in the way of human understanding as hypernormalization seems to impress upon you that we are all idiots fumbling in darkness while kleptocrats use our own interests to perpetrate injustices with unexpected and violent results. You may want to watch Camera Person after, as it is totally the exact opposite. So ready your scythe of skepticism, but hypernormalization is worth watching as an entry point to a wider world of investigation. The fiscal crisis of 1979, origins of suicide bombing, UFO disinformation, the idealistic declaration of independence of cyberspace, the theater-influenced contortions of Russian political technologists, and, of course, Trump. These are just some of the poisonous morsels served. Um, yes, as I mentioned, many, many people have met, have told me that I should watch hypernormalization in in recent months. It is if you are in the UK, the official venue of it is the BBC iPlayer, which is not available in the US mm-hmm. as Ross mentioned. It has been plunked on YouTube by other people, which I think Adam Curtis has kind of been broadly okay with. So you can find it there and thank you for that Ross that was very eloquent. Okay, and one film chosen blindly by number from your or my you gave me number five. That is Gamora the Series. Uh-huh. Yes, this is a crime drama, Italian crime drama, based on the book of the same name by Roberto Saviano, a book that also inspired the 2008 Matteo Garone film, which is also on Netflix. It's gotten some wire comparisons for its kind of broad spectrum approach to organized crime in Naples. 
And so there it is. There it is. Season one is now on Netflix and on my my list. Wonderful. Matt, are you ready? Yes. All right. Well, give me three new releases. First up, the movie I'm most looking forward to watching when I have a few minutes after we're done recording this podcast. It's David Brent Life on the Road, a sequel or epilogue to one of my all-time favorite TV shows, the British version of The Office. Ricky Gervais reprises his role from the series, sniveling middle manager David Brent, and he wrote and directed the film as well. Gervais's projects in recent years have been not so great, but The Office still holds up to me as a classic. One of the really unsung important shows of the kickoff of the golden age of television that we all currently enjoy. And so I'm hoping that returning to this material also is a return to form for Ricky Gervais. So that's David Brent, Life on the Road, which is new on Netflix. Next up, I'm going to continue my tradition here on the show of recommending uncool and generally unpopular Will Ferrell movies by suggesting you watch Everything Must Go on Hulu. This is one of Will Ferrell's dramatic movies based on a Raymond Carver short story about an alcoholic who hits rock bottom and then has a, has a massive yard sale basically for everything he owns. Uh, not really a comedy not that kind of uh, Will Ferrell movie, certainly not the kind of broad comedy that he's known for, but it's a good performance as this, I would say, Paul Dano-esque character, and uh, I do recommend people checking that one out. That's Everything Must Go on Hulu. And finally, this week, also on Hulu, I've got uh, Brokeback Mountain, Ang Lee's amazing film about the decades-long relationship between two Cowboys, played by Jake Gyllenhaal and Heath Ledger, an incredible movie. Should have won Best Picture in 2005 and not Crash. A decision, I think, that looks, I would say, even worse every year with every year that passes. Sure. And uh, by the time you hear this, ScreenCrush.com will have a new list up of the best sex scenes of the last 25 years. And uh, you can be sure that the scene between Hall and Heath Ledger will be on that list. Brokeback Mountain, available on Hulu. Okay, how about two listener recommendations? Uh, Our first here comes from Mike Murphy in Los Angeles. He says, I was perusing Amazon Prime's stealthily extensive catalog, and that's a good way of putting it, when I discovered that Richard Linklater's Before Sunrise was hidden uh, amongst their eclectic lineup. I don't think much needs to be said about this movie or this trilogy or Linklater himself. But I feel like this entry in the Before trilogy hasn't been as readily accessible in recent years, maybe because it just recently got an HD tune-up for the upcoming Criterion Collection box set. Um, With that release only a couple of weeks away, I still find myself compelled to revisit Before Sunrise now that I can find it so readily accessible. About 10 months ago, I went to to the Arrow Theater in Santa Monica and saw a triple bill of the entire trilogy – during a Linklater series celebrating the release of Everybody Wants Some. To see the 18-year relationship of Jesse and Celine compressed into five hours is paralyzing in some ways because the arc of the trilogy is at both times uh, glorious and heartbreaking. To start the evening with the serendipitous encounter on the train in Vienna and close it out, how it, uh, I won't spoil it, but how it closes out, uh, is deeply, deeply resonant. Uh, However, the peak of the trilogy remains Sunrise. I first saw it in college on a whim and found it spellbinding. Never before nor since have I found a movie that so truthfully portrays what it feels like to fall in love. So that is Before Sunrise, streaming on Amazon Prime, and that's from Mike in Los Angeles. Thank you, Mike. Next up, we've got a recommendation from Thomas, who's on Twitter, at pancakes now i'd like to recommend the movie h 
H period, the punctuation mark, on Netflix. I've coined a category for movies like H, drama of the inexplicable. These are films where something inexplicable, usually supernatural-seeming, intrudes upon an otherwise normal reality. Peter Weir's Picnic at Hanging Right Rock might be an example, along with TV series like The Leftovers. Unlike magic realism, which treats magic as ordinary, the strangeness in these stories is very much recognized as disturbing and upsetting. In H, a meteor, if that's what it is, flashes across the the sky over Troy, New York, and bizarre things begin happening. Drinking glasses spontaneously shatter, and people are found standing with their nose to the wall in a sort of coma. A large stone hand of a statue is found floating down the river. We follow two women named Helen through the craziness. One is a young conceptual artist who is pregnant, and the other is older and has a lifelike infant doll, which she cares for as if it were her own. Like other dramas of the inexplicable, the point of H is not to unravel its mysteries. It leaves a lot of questions unanswered. The fascination comes from watching how characters respond when their reality is turned upside down. So that is H, punctuation mark, period, on Netflix. Thank you, Thomas, for that recommendation. Okay, well, give me one from your my list. You gave me number 10, and number 10 right now on my, 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 my list is Holy Hell, which is a documentary. I'll read you the plot description. An ex-member charts his path from idealism to disenchantment in a California cult when alarming revelations about the group's leader comes to light. It's always those cult leaders who always have those alarming revelations, and they always come to light, Allison. They come to light. Can't keep secrets if you're a cult leader. Yeah, it always seems to happen that way. The movie played at Sundance in 2016. I heard some good things about it. Uh, I was not at Sundance last year. Haven't had a chance to catch up with it because of the damn baby. And so I added it to my my list uh, a little while ago. Holy hell on Netflix. We have three options for our next Listener's Choice review, which are all available on Amazon Prime. So there will be no accusations in this poll that, oh, you guys picked two rentals and one Netflix movie, so of course the Netflix movie won, or whatever it is. I can guarantee something on Amazon Prime will win this poll. Which one will win, I cannot say, because that is up to you to decide. Uh, Allison, you have our first option. I do. And it is, I will just go ahead and say it. It is the one I want, I hope will win. Because oh, I shamelessly like, b- voting here, because, trying to sway the vote. Well, because it is the film that I think will lead to the best conversation because right. it offers a lot of kind of ethical questions about filmmaking. It is author, the JT Leroy story, JT Leroy. Uh, it is on Amazon prime on the 16th of February. So very close to when this comes out, it will be, it will be available directed by Jeff Furzig, uh, who did the devil and Daniel Johnson, which is an excellent documentary. And it is about JT Leroy, who was a writer in the late nineties, early two thousands, who claimed to write a lot of personal stories about drawing from his and eventually uh, his kind of gender, this uh, male and then eventually kind of gender fluid identity. Uh, his childhood in West Virginia, where his mother was a truck stop sex worker, and he got into sex working himself underage and was this all this like extreme kind of Southern Gothic tragic background and turned out to not be real. Uh, turned out to Spoiler be alert. written by uh, an older thirty-something uh, woman named and forty-something woman named Laura Albert. Spoiler who alert! Would recru- recruit her sister-in-law to put on a wig, a blonde wig, Spoiler and alert. pretend to be J.T. Leroy in person, yeah. and befriended countless celebrities. Mm. 
and was eventually undone as a fraud. Spoiler alert. Yes. So this movie is about this fascinating period, but is also it allows Laura Albert to tell her own story and essentially craft her own defense in a way that I think some people some people did not care for. Yes, when seeing it, really, really wanted that this narrative to be more challenged. Though I feel part of the point of the movie is how kind of good this person is at creating a narrative for herself, regardless of the persona she is adapting. So a really, really fascinating movie. And also if you, uh, it has a lot of fascinating snippets of uh, kind of celebrities, unguarded celebrity discussion because Laura Albert recorded all of her phone calls without telling people. Spoiler alert. Yes. So author, the JT Leroy story on Amazon Prime. That is your first option. All right. That's your first option. Option number two, also available on Amazon Prime, is the film The Greasy Strangler. And uh, (laughs) I have not seen this movie, but I've heard a lot about it. I've heard very, uh, I'd say, uh, polarized reactions to The Greasy Strangler, I suppose. Uh, I was I, I didn't know how to describe this movie. So what I did was I went to the New York Times review, which this is how their review of this film, which came out in 2016 and is directed by Jim Hosking. This is how their review begins. Just how weird is The Greasy Strangler? It's about a chubby man dweeb named Big Braden who suspects that his elderly, irascible father, Big Ronnie, moonlights as The Greasy Strangler, a creature who covers himself and his quote-unquote mega-penis – I don't know what that means. Uh, In oozing layers of grease and fat before he sets out to slaughter. By day, the two men lead tours of supposed disco landmarks. They dress in gender-warping outfits that a generous fashion critic might call the Willy Wonka collection for Chico's when they fall in love with the same bodacious woman. It sparks a Jerry Springer meets Arthur Miller war of sexual and emotional duplicity. The film overflows with extravagant flatulence, which would really, I think, be terrific to just a one-two punch with... Uh, Swiss Army Man, frenzied gore and preposterous copulation, or as Variety put it, it is an exercise in juvenile scatology that's almost awesomely pure in its numbing, repetitious determination to annoy, with a sense of absurdism that stubbornly remains on the pee-pee caca level. So yeah, it's that weird. Okay. Enough said. Option number two, The Greasy Strangler, available on Amazon Prime. All right, option number three, and I feel bad for this movie because it's, <laughs> it's going not going to win. It's doomed. Yeah. But is The Retrieval, which is also on Amazon Prime. It's kind of a quiet, critical favorite from 2013, written and directed by Chris Esca, who's gotten, who's won an uh, Independent Spirit Award for a past film. And this one is set during the Civil War and is about a 13-year-old boy who has figured out a very uh, uncomfortable means of survival. Uh, he works, he and his uncle or, um, work for a gang of bounty hunters who track runaway slaves and bring them back. Um, And this boy's role is to befriend the slaves, find them, kind of earn their trust, and then lead them back to this gang of bounty hunters. Uh, What may be interesting about this movie beyond this premise is it is the first role for Ashton Sanders, who played the teenage Sharon in Moonlight and was uh, one of the many outstanding performances in that movie. But if you want to see Ashton in an earlier role, and clearly someone saw a huge amount of promise in him, put him in a lead role in in something like this right away, uh, that would be option three the retrieval okay so which movie should we review on the next episode of film spotting streaming video unit it's up to you send your pick to svu at filmspottingsvu.com 
or enter in the poll on the right-hand side of the page at filmspottingsvu.com. Your vote must be received by Monday, February 20th at noon. After that, we'll announce the winner on Twitter at our Twitter account, twitter.com slash filmspottingsvu, and you will have all the week to watch the film and then join us for our conversation on our next episode, which should be out around Tuesday, February 28th. Filmspottingsvu.com is also where you can find our episode archive, uh, as well as a list to all of the direct links, uh, movies and shows that we've discussed. The Filmspotting SVU remix theme song is by Vince Vandal. You can always find more of his work at vincevandal.bandcamp.com. And we will be back in two weeks with more recommendations and the review you pick. In the meantime, you can always find us on Twitter at Alison Wilmore and at Matt Singer. And you can find the show at Filmspotting SVU. You might want to give us a follow. That is where we announce the winner of each episode's listener's choice and where we share more streaming suggestions as they come out on various sites. Um, you can also give us a like on Facebook, facebook.com slash SVU. We've gotten some interesting discussion and suggestions on there, and we'd love to hear from you. For Film Spotting SVU, I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. And don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes and email us if you want to enter that contest to win those Blu-rays. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>